Let's assume that this friend of yours is a Jew. Let's assume that you want to show this friend of yours that Yeshua is the Mashiach from the Bible. I feel certain that most of you would say, you've got to meet my rabbi. That's a great tragedy. I'm a rabbi too. And part of our job is to train you so that you don't simply say, well, I don't know these things. You've got to talk to my rabbi. This morning, I want to show you a simple way, a very effective way, that you can present what the Tanakh, the Older Testament, says about the Messiah to your friend in a way that will give your friend something to think about. Not all of you are going to get this. 80% of you will not. That's just a statistic. It's not about you. It's just about people in general. But I'm talking now to those of you, the 20% of you, who will never forget what I'm saying. Let me tell you, what I'm giving you is the best way I know and the simplest way I know to present to people a reasoned argument from prophecy as to why this guy from Nazareth is the Messiah. Our goal is to construct a cumulative picture of the Messiah. In other words, uh, the evidence, as the evidence accumulates, um, the case becomes stronger until the person has to say, Really, I don't know if Jesus is the Messiah or not, but if he isn't, then it's his identical twin. So the evidence is cumulative. Secondly, it's especially powerful for you to stay in the Older Testament. When you deal with Jewish people, generally they don't want to look at the New Testament. Um, They don't trust it. But yet... So it's generally a good idea to stay in the Old Older Testament. Thirdly, it's especially powerful to not mention Jesus. What I do is I tell people, look, I'm going to t- I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you what the Tanakh, what the Jewish Bible says about the Messiah. So if the Messiah should ever come, you'll be able to recognize him. Okay? And I just present to them the evidence. What happens is that in their own heads, they say, holy cow, that looks like you know who. But you are not to talk to them about Jesus because that causes them to feel aggressed and threatened. And I don't blame Jewish people for this. And I'll tell you why later on, why I don't blame Jewish people for their resistance to the idea that Yeshua could be the Mashiach. We'll talk about that later. And those of you who are Jews, I don't have to tell you. You know. But your friends will end up convincing themselves. So when you build a cumulative argument, I want you to be able to do it on a napkin in Starbucks. All you need is probably a Bible because you don't have it memorized. You do need a Bible because you've got to show it to your friends. A Bible that your Jewish friend will trust. 
it can be a Jewish Bible that doesn't have a New Testament in it. You need a Bible, you need a pen or a marker and a napkin, period. And you need to know what you're doing. And what you do is you're going to construct eight concentric circles. You're going to start with a large one. The next one is going to be slightly smaller inside of that large one. The next one will be slightly smaller than that. The next one will be slightly smaller than that. The next one will be slightly smaller than that. The next one will be slightly... And you go down with eight circles. And as the circles narrow, it shows that... Graphically shows that the candidates for the Messiah become increasingly fewer. In other words, as the evidence mounts, the people who could be the Messiah become fewer and fewer. So the field narrows down. Do we understand do we understand me so far? I hope so. So you move from the outside in, you label each circle in turn. I want you to avoid here's a danger that I've seen myself violate and I've seen other people violate. Jewish people know that they ought to know the Bible. They feel it. They also feel humiliated that they don't. And if you overwhelm Jewish people with a lot of Bible verses and say, look here and look here and look here and look here, they immediately feel two things. Number one, they've been told that believers in Jesus, especially Christians, uh, distort the Bible. And secondly, they're embarrassed by the fact that they don't know whether you're flim-flaming them or not. They don't know the Bible well enough. I recently, uh, during the last couple of years, I have visited in a mainstream synagogue here in California with a very good rabbi. It's a very large synagogue. I really love this place. I love to worship God there. But that rabbi has admitted to me and he's admitted to his congregation. He says, I don't know the Bible very well. I don't know as well as I should. He says, the Christian clergymen I meet know the Bible better than I do. And this rabbi has said to me, he says, uh, you know, he's very impressed with what I know. He's surprised because he knows I'm a Messianic Jew. I told him the first day I showed up there, he doesn't know quite what to do with me. But But if this very competent rabbi of a very sizable congregation will confess that his knowledge of the Scripture leaves something to be desired, how much more does the average Jew know very little about the Bible? And I will also, and before we cluck our tongues at our Jewish people, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I would ask you to ask yourself, how many of you have read the whole Bible? How many of you have been believers in Yeshua for decades and you still haven't read the whole thing? So we shouldn't look down our noses. At any rate, getting back to my argument, you want to avoid overwhelming these people with Scripture, and you want to do it informally. You don't want to scare them. You don't want to, you don't want to cause their minds to shut down. If you overwhelm them, they won't tell you, but they stop listening because they can't follow. They can't evaluate. So in the famous phrase, kiss, K-I-S-S. Keep it simple, stupid. Okay? All right. 
So the first circle is a circle of humanity. In Genesis 3, we read about uh, Adam and Eve and the serpent. If you don't know what that story is, then either it's the first day you've ever been in a place like this, or you haven't been paying attention. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all animals and among all the wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, this serpent is not, this is not a story about why snakes talk or why snakes crawl. The serpent is a symbol of, of Satan, of the, of the spiritual, the great spiritual adversary. And Hashem says to him, I will put uh, enmity, hostility, between you, the serpent, and the woman. So there is a hostility between humanity and the satanic realm. Number one. And I will put that enmity between your offspring, that is the serpent's offspring, and hers. And he will strike your head, that is the serpent's offspring will strike, rather the woman's offspring will strike the serpent's head and the the serpent will strike his heel. Let's look at this. If If you, God forbid... If you meet a snake on a trail somewhere here in Southern California and he bites you on the heel, you might have a problem. Especially if he's a poisonous snake. But if you crush his head, who has the bigger problem? So Satan is going to be vanquished in some kind of a confrontation with the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is the Messiah. The rabbis acknowledge this way back on the Targumim, which are Aramaic paraphrases of Scripture. They acknowledge this is King Messiah. King Messiah is the one who crushes the head of the serpent. So of all the beings who ever lived, now we know something. I'm talking to your friend, your friend, let's call, if he's a guy, let's call him Jeff. And if he's a woman, let's call her Sheila. Jeff, whoever the Messiah is, he's not going to be an extraterrestrial, not going to be an angel, not going to be a Martian. It's going to be the seed of the woman. Okay? So we keep going. Not only do we know that uh, he's uh, going to be a human being, we know that of all the human beings who ever lived, the Messiah is going to be a Jew. Now, right now, Jews are uh, something like... uh, um, 3% of the population. The Lord said to the, uh, rather, let's go on. The, uh, this, uh, this text up here, well, you, like, let's see. Do you have a text? There you are. That's one. Now the Lord uh, said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other references, let's go over here. I'm going to walk over here. Okay? Watch this. I'm going to go over here. Why don't you look at this banner over here? This banner says, Abraham... 
I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants, that word is zera. Descendants is zera. It's seed. Your zera will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your zera, the same word, all the nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now, zera is a funny word. It's a word kind of like sheep. There's no such word as sheeps. The plural of sheep is what? Thank you very much. The zera is either refers to the Jewish people as a whole, but it can also refer to that individual from within the Jewish people who is the means of the blessing of all the families of the earth. And as we look at the testimony of Scripture, as it narrows down, if you follow those prophecies about the seed, you find that uh, it's talking about an individual also who will be the means of blessing to all the families of the earth. We read, we read on, it says, Jacob left Beersheba, went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place. This is, uh, this is Abraham's grandson. He came to a certain place and, uh, and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head. He lay down in that place. He dreamed there was a ladder set up on the earth. The top of it reached towards heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, actually your ancestor, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you live, uh, you lie, I will give to you. And your offspring, your Zerah, shall be like the dust on the earth. And you shall spread aboard to the east and to the west, to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and your zera, your offspring. And as we follow it throughout Scripture, we discover that that seed through whom the families of the earth is blessed is the Jewish people, yes, but also that one within the Jewish people who is the source of blessing to all the earth. And you're going to see that a little more as we go to the next passage. So now we've seen that of all the beings who ever lived, the Messiah has to be a human being. Of all the human beings that have, that have lived, the Messiah has to be a Jew. That eliminates most of humanity, correct? Correct. Years ago, uh, there was a guy named uh, Guru Maharaji. A friend of mine used to call him Messiah with a wristwatch. He, he, he claimed to be the Messiah. They had a big event at the Houston Afterdome with him. And he had a Rolex. You know, you can see the picture of this great Rolex. I don't have a Rolex. Uh, not, I have one at home. I inherited it from my father. But I'm not wearing a Rolex. But he was wearing a hot Rolex. But he was from India. Could not be the Messiah. The Messiah has to be a human being, has to be a Jewish human being. Not only that, of all the Jews who ever lived, we have now the Messiah's tribal identity. We've seen the circle of humanity, the circle of, uh, of, uh, of ethnicity, if you will, now the circle of tribe, of all the Jews who ever lived. The Messiah has to be from the tribe of Judah. Even if you assume falsely that all the 12 tribes are exactly the same size, this would mean that out of all the Jews who ever lived, a small group 
The Messiah had to come from one-twelfth of all the Jews who ever lived. And we read, as you read this morning, the scepter, the sign of rulership, shall not depart from the tribe of Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and the obedience of the peoples is his, or as other translations which I like better say, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And Shiloh is the word in Hebrew there. The rabbis say that's a code name for the Messiah. So that the scepter doesn't depart from the tribe of Judah until the Messiah comes in the tribe of Judah. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, not just the Jewish people, but all the peoples of the earth. So now we know that of all the beings who ever lived, the Messiah had to be a human being. Of all the human beings, he had to be a Jew. Of all the Jews, he had to be from the tribe of Judah. Not bad. Okay, now, of all the families in the tribe of Judah, he had to come from David's family. You know, this is hot stuff, folks. Uh, you guys look like the Nuremberg jury this morning. Uh, maybe you didn't get enough sleep. Would, would you all smile? One, two, three, smile. Thank you, I feel so much better. That's it, you can stop now. Um, but of all the human beings, a Jew, of all the Jews from the tribe of Judah, of all the families in the tribe of Judah, he has to be from David's family. That's hot stuff. Second Samuel chapter 7. The days are surely... Uh, your, oh, sorry. Your house... Let's see how... Let's see, there, there it is. You have it up right up there. Your house and your kingdom, that's God speaking to David, shall be made sure before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God tells David that his throne shall be established forever. There will be a descendant of David who sits on David's throne forever and ever and ever. And Jeremiah 23 picks up on this. Many passages pick up on it. Here's just one. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch, a descendant, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah shall be saved. Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called Adonai Tzidkenu. The Messiah will be a descendant of David. We have that famous passage, uh, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. This is Isaiah chapter 9. And his name will be called Wonderful Counsel, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to his kingdom on the throne of David to establish it forever and ever. The Messiah will be on the throne of David and he'll reign forever and ever. So now, we see that of all the beings who ever lived, the Messiah had to be a human being. Of all the humans, he had to be a Jew. Of all the Jews, he had to be from the tribe of Judah. Of all the families in the tribe of Judah, he had to be from the family of David. It's getting narrower. Then we have the circle of birthplace. Of all the Jews in the tribe of Judah, from the family of David, the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. You read about this this morning in the New Covenant reading. You, Bethlehem Ephratah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me, the one who is to rule in Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient days. I like Isaiah, that's uh, Micah chapter 5. I like that because it says in verse 5, and this one shall be our peace. Peace is shalom. Shalom is my Hebrew name. And I get a kick 
out of discovering that my parents, without realizing it, gave me a messianic name back there when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president. They didn't know there were, they didn't know I'd be a messianic Jew. They didn't know they were going to give me a name that is one of the names of the Messiah. He's called, this one will be our Shalom. So now we know of all the beings who ever lived, a human being, Jewish human being, tribe of Judah, family of David, born in Bethlehem. Let's keep moving. Now we come to the circle of his lies, of his life, God forbid, of his life, of his uh, reception and his death. How was the Messiah to live? How would he be received? How would he die? Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by others or by men, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity, and as one from whom others hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him of no account. So how was he received? Not very well. With contempt. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our sicknesses, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. And sadly, our people, the Jewish people, look upon Yeshua that way in most cases. And it's sad. It's very sad. But verse 7 continues. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By perversion of justice he was taken away. So we find out that he died in a judicial proceeding. Whoever this Messiah is, he would be a person who was uh, despised in general by the Jewish people, who dies in a judicial proceeding. Who could have imagined his future if he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich. Watch this. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Done no violence means there was no sinfulness in his actions. No deceit in his mouth, there was no sinfulness in his words. So, what do we learn about the Messiah's manner of life, reception, and death? Very easy. His life is basically sinless. No violence no deceit. His reception is he's despised. He's assumed to be stricken by God. His death, he dies in a judicial proceeding. So, Jeff, so, Sheila, if you're going to have a Messiah someday, this is what he's going to be. He's going to be a human being from the, tri- from the Jewish people, from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And when he comes, he's going to be despised by the Jewish people. He's going to live a sinless life, and he's going to die in a judicial proceeding. However, his manner of, uh, of reception is not just that. He's going to be welcomed by the goyim, by the nations. Isaiah chapter 11 says, On that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples, the nations, the goyim, the goyim, shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. So this Messiah will be one whom the Gentiles flock to. 
Isaiah chapter 49 says to the Messiah, It is too small a thing that you should be my chosen one to raise up the outcasts of, Jew- of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So whoever this guy is, who is a Jew from the, family of Ju- from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David, born in Bethlehem, whom the Jewish people despise, who dies in a Jewish proceeding, despite the fact that he led a sinless life, this person will be very popular with the Gentiles. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Let's go on. We not only know all of these things, we also know when the Messiah will come. The Jewish people went into exile 586, 587 BC, BCE. Among the Jewish people who went off into exile was a young boy named, Dave, uh, named Daniel. Daniel ends up in Babylon as a diplomat under six different pagan monarchs in the course of time. When he's an old man, he's reading the book of the prophet Jeremiah because Jeremiah had prophesied that the exile would last 70 years. 70 years. Daniel begins to think, holy cow, sacrivash. 70 years. I was a kid when this started. The 70 years is about up. So Daniel starts to pray, and because he knows that the exile is due to sin, he begins to pray about Israel's sin, and he asks for forgiveness from God, and that God would, would de- deal a, a final coup de grace, a final death blow on the problem of sin among the Jewish people. And while he's praying, an angel, Gabriel, Gabriel comes to visit him. And I invite you to read Daniel chapter 9. And in the midst of that chapter, the angel says this. And it's a little difficult to understand. But all you have to understand is the order of events. That's all I ask you to understand. And we're going to look at that. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, Daniel, and understand that from the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, so there's going to be a command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's event number one. Until the time of an anointed prince that's anointed as Mashiach. Mashiach Nagid is what the Hebrew is. From the time of a command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Mashiach Nagid, until the, 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 the Messiah, uh, um, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's 69 weeks. And we believe that's weeks of years. 483 years. And it shall be built again with streets and a moat, but in troubled times. And after the 62 weeks, the anointing one will be cut off. So now we have 
Command to rebuild Jerusalem. I'll start this way. It looks easier to you. Command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. The Messiah comes. The Messiah is cut off and has nothing. And the troops of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, that's all you need to know. Four events. Command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Messiah comes. Messiah dies. The city is destroyed. Question. When was the city of Jerusalem destroyed after the building of the second temple? 70 AD. So whoever this Messiah is, he had to have come between the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which we believe was given under Artaxerxes the Persian in about uh, 444 BCE. From that, the time that command is given, the, then the temple and the city will be rebuilt, the Messiah will come, the Messiah will die, and the temple will be destroyed. So you see that, that timeline there? Whoever the Messiah is, He's a human being, a Jewish human being from the tribe of Judah, born in Bethlehem, who will be despised by the Jewish people, who will be, live a sinless life, who will die in a judicial proceeding, whom the Gentiles will flock to. And all of this will happen between 444 BCE and 70 uh, of the Common Era. So, let's just review what we've been looking at, okay? The Messiah is, uh, next slide please. The Messiah is a human being. He's a Jew from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David, born in Bethlehem, sinless, rejected by the Jewish people and executed. He's welcomed by the nations. And he lives and dies sometime between 444 BCE and 70 CE, the common era. Now, during this whole presentation, who have I not mentioned among others? I've not mentioned Jesus. I don't mention Yeshua. I suggest you don't mention Yeshua either. Because your job is simply to present the evidence. Your friend, Jeff or Sheila, will make the case in their own head. It's much more powerful. So now, I want to look at the, the big, a big question. And this is an important question. If all of this is true, and if it's in the Jewish Bible, why can't our people see this? And sometimes, I've been asked this question over the last 50 years, by, I suppose, well-meaning Christians who are really saying, how can the Jewish people be so stupid? It's so obvious to me. It's so obvious to us. Why don't they see it? Well, they're not stupid. There's many things that Jewish people are. But one thing we're not. We're not stupid. I would say we don't have a Goyesha cup, but that would not be nice. So, let's move on. Why don't the Jewish people see it? Number one, for reasons that we can never fully understand, a hardening in part has happened to Israel. God has hardened the hearts of the Jewish people so that the Gentiles could come uh, into his family. 
That's what it says in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Now, do I understand why? Not fully. But if God wanted tomorrow, January 4th, 2015, that all the Jews on the face of the earth would realize that Yeshua is the Messiah, would that happen? Yes, it would. The biblical worldview is that God is ruler over everything. And for some reason that we don't fully understand, a hardening in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's the first reason that our people don't fully see this. Secondly, sadly, our people don't know the Bible. I want you to know that Jewish, religious Jewish men, especially Orthodox religious Jewish men, are extraordinarily knowledgeable. Extraordinary. But much of what they read is, is the Talmud and other things that have to do with the apparatus of Jewish life and with the discussion of how Jewish life is to be lived. And that's a noble thing. Because if you're servants of the king, you want to know what does it mean to obey him. So studying all of this, don't ever look down your nose. The reason it's studied is that we would take seriously what does obedience look like in this situation, this situation, this situation, this situation, every conceivable situation. That's what the Talmud is all about. What does obedience look like in every conceivable situation? And it's only because people take obedience to God seriously that they worry about it. So don't look down your nose. But the problem is, is that many of these very, very learned men don't really know the Scripture. And if they don't know the Scripture, then the average secular Jew that you're going to bump into out there in Orange County tomorrow, you know, they don't know the Bible. The reason they don't see it, they don't know it. Second reason. Third reason. Our people's fundamental assumptions make it unthinkable that Jesus would be the Messiah. Unthinkable. You mean to tell me that this guy in whose name millions of our people have been killed and persecuted and tortured, that this is the Mashiach? Give me a break. That's the, that's the reason. It's unthinkable. They, they assume, how can it be? And the reason is that Yeshua's name has been ruined by anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism. His name has been ruined. His reputation has been besmirched. It should make us all sad. And it's very serious. I've got an um, iPad in front of me here. I'm broadcasting to France right now to a friend of mine who is going to be associated with me in a project and one of the things that, I, that God has called me to stand for in the remainder of my life is a more Jewish Jesus. Um, a more Jewish Jesus than we usually think of. Um, and once Jewish people begin to see Jesus as totally Jewish, for example... Jesus didn't come 
to stamp the Torah expired. He did not. He did not. He did not. Most of us have bought into that to some extent. Yeshua says, don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he says, if you break one of the least of these commandments, um, uh, you, you're the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does these commandments and teaches men so shall be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We haven't really dealt with the implications of all of this. That Yeshua is extraordinarily Torah positive. So I'm going to be standing with my friends for three things which I call the three-stranded cord. It's found in the New Covenant. That famous passage in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 says, I will, write, I will put my Torah within them and write my Torah on their hearts. Number one, we're going to stand for Jewish people returning to Jewish life. Number two, they shall no longer say, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. So the second strand, the first strand is a return to Jewish life. The second strand is a deep relationship with God. Because you can be living in Jewish life, but if you don't know God, you don't know God. You might as well be a pagan. So a return to Jewish life, a deep relationship with God. Third strand, I will forgive their, uh, I will will forget their iniquities and their sins I will remember no more. That's Yeshua, the sin bearer, and the great high priest. Those are the three strands. A deepening engagement with Jewish life, a deepening relationship with God, and a deepening faith in Yeshua the Messiah. Those are the three things we're going to stand for. And um, I ask you to pray for this because we're going to start a project. It's called Haba'er. Would you say Haba'er? Haba'er. It means the well. And it's going to be a home where we teach people, Jewish people, and intermarried couples, what is a Jewish life that honors Yeshua and that grows in relationship with God look like seven days a week. Because most, most of our people have a one-day-a-week relationship with religion. They come on Saturday, if they do at all, to a synagogue. They come on Shabbat to a Messianic synagogue. And they go home and they live every which way. Identity is not shaped that way. It's shaped seven days a week. That's what we're going to do. So, getting back to you and your friend Jeff and your friend Sheila. I encourage you to begin practicing this little presentation. You can polish it up. Those of you who are very highly motivated, read books like Michael Brown's books. You ever familiar with Michael Brown? Dr. Michael Brown? Read Michael Brown's books. That'll give you a lot of, a lot of depth on the bench, so to speak, that you can take these eight points and really back them up. But this presentation is very powerful. But if your Jewish friend still says, sorry, don't be hard on him. Don't be hard on her. Because the hardening in part has happened in Israel by the design of God. Because our people generally don't know the Bible. Because the idea that Yeshua could be the Messiah is a tough pill for Jews to swallow in view of the Jewish historical experience. Because of rampant anti-Semitism, the hatred of the Jewish people as a people, and anti-Judaism, contempt for Judaism as a religion. So, 
I'm going to ask you all to stand. I get to give you a benediction, a blessing. I hope that my lesson today helped you. My problem is I'm six feet five, and I, when I get intense, people tend to think I'm angry. It's very intimidating. I'm not angry. I'm just intense. And I, I pray for the 20% of you who really got it. May God bless you as you go to Starbucks and change the world. And for the rest of you, I pray that you will migrate to the 20%. And now receive the blessing of God. May Hashem bless you and may He keep you. May He cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May He lift up the light of His countenance upon you and may He grant you His shalom. May He make you whole in body, soul, and spirit. And may that wholeness be so apparent to the people you encounter that they will say to you, what is it with you? And may you at that time be able to give a reason for the hope that is in you, yet with meekness and reverence. We ask these things in the name of Yeshua, our righteous Messiah, who did not quench a burning flax and did not break a broken reed, but who gently changed the world. Shabbat Shalom.